aside from, I guess, maybe that there's a larger commentary about, like, you know, well, men shouldn't just see the outside of the woman. They should see the inside. Well, that sounds horrifying. That, they should see the inside of the woman. Please cut that out. That's not what I meant at all. Thank you, everyone, so much for joining us for our first ever episode of Blockbusted. Uh, I'm Lily Yasuda. I'm Michael Wolf. And yeah, you are listening to Blockbusted, a podcast about the movies we love and how they shape the world as we know it. Um, yeah, we're very excited to be here with our inaugural episode. This is something we've been thinking about for, I, I was going to say a really long time, but I actually don't know that it's been that long between conception and where we stand now. But I don't know, a month or so, a little bit of forethought has gone into this and um yeah ready to uh sweep the internet with our biting commentary on the films you love tearing them apart just the right amount we're here Um, to cancel all of your favorite movies (laughs) we're here to cancel all of them but only like a little bit like 25 percent cancel all the movies you know and love uh and hopefully provoke great uh pseudo angry dinner conversation with your relatives uh, everything from the eighties is problematic friends. So we're just, we're just going to open right there. <laughs> yeah. That's no, that's pretty, that's pretty much, that's, that's pretty spot on. I'd say yeah, everything. working title, everything from the eighties is problematic <laughs> and the nineties <laughs> and the nineties, but especially the eighties, like anything. Yeah. Any like broad comedy from the eighties is like not doing super hot right now. I saw Tootsie for the first time, like fairly recently. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. It is like a delightful romp, but also I'm like, I feel like we did not take away any of the meaningful ideas that like this concept could have yielded. Um, so stand by for future future episode on Tootsie. <laughs> we've got we've got some good ones coming up that I'm really excited about. But wanted to say, so we're not we're not here to like cancel your favorite movie, but part of part of like what this podcast is supposed to be about is we just want you to engage with the movie and what it's trying to say that's because that's that's why we started this we were like we i i think i i think a lot of people don't realize what a movie is actually saying and how that impacts us and our first episode today is going to be about when harry met sally and it's actually like my go-to example for whenever somebody tries to say like a movie uh like, it's just a movie. Like, what's the big deal? Whenever you try to say, like, a movie doesn't have totally. a meaning or what it's trying to totally. say. And I think that's extra, like, um, common when you talk about genre stuff, right? Like horror movies or rom-coms, like, things that aren't, um, I guess, as we say in the biz, like, things that are not an elevated drama. Um, I think it's easier for us to write that stuff off. It's like, well, it's just entertainment. It doesn't really mean anything. Um, and again, we don't want to be those annoying kids in the back of like your AP lit class that are trying to like mansplain like nuance that is not there. Um, But we felt it was really important. Um, You know, Michael and I uh, have uh, worked on some creative projects together and, uh, you know, swap a lot of heated texts about things we watch. And we thought it would be a fun opportunity um, just to do this kind of as friends and uh, have a reason to dick around a couple times a month, but also to share with other people um, our insights, feel free to take them or leave them. Um, but about that big picture ideology and sort of prominent, I guess, agendas. Like, do we feel like we're talking about like the agendas of films? Is that fair? Maybe that feels like a little scary. Like, and it's not that we're implying all movies have a negative agenda. 
Um, but uh, yeah, really trying to, I think, examine it more like you would a book or a literary text or uh, hopefully will be like your favorite kind of op-ed, but as a podcast that you can enjoy while making yourself a grilled cheese sandwich at the end of the day. That, that, that is what, that is really what we're trying to do here. So, um, well, I mean, I, I'm just here cause I love to hear myself talk, but absolutely. That's the first thing you need to know about Michael. You're like, Michael, not, can you have less of an ego, please? It is distracting to everybody. Please knock it off. It's true. I'm not going to apologize for it. Yeah, that, exactly. Classic Michael, not even apologizing. Yeah. Well, I think, and I think, um, part of this is like, we don't teach movies in school right like we teach books right uh we take books very seriously and readings very seriously but we don't talk about visual literacy at all in school and you know uh this stuff matters in that like uh people there's an entire industry of people who literally just sell advertising you know to go into this stuff um so it either works or it doesn't. And a lot of people are spending money on it. And so this is like, this is about the other side of that. Like what is being advertised um, in the actual stuff you're watching, you know, next For to sure. those advertisements. For sure. And not in any way to dismiss like the intentionality or legitimacy of um, prose writing or any other medium at all. I'm not playing like, oh, filmmaking is like a higher art, but filmmaking requires more people than I would say any other kind of art, just at like a volume scale, even with a pretty small crew, right? And then once you bring in all of your post-production people and advertisers and marketing execs and all of that stuff, there's a very intentional um, brand and idea that is being sold to you. Um, and so I think it is that to me in part of it is why I think it's valid to be a little bit harsher on films that perpetrate kind of toxic or um, incomplete ideas because it really is a group project. You know, it's not like, oh, like, I think this would be different if we were just talking about a script and as someone who is mostly a screenwriter, again, not dismissing uh, the craftsmanship of writing on the page, but the sheer amount of people that have to come together for a movie to really work, um, I think creates like, a very long-term intentional plan of what it is you're trying to say. And so we're here to hopefully encourage you to think a little bit more critically about that and, uh, and hopefully learn some fun facts along the way. And, and not just, and not just the sheer amount of people, but the sheer amount of money, right? Yeah. Like only a handful of these movies like get made. Like there are, there are, there are thousands of and thousands of books written every year, but in a, a and tons of songs written every year but there is a tiny number of movies made Definitely. in comparison so all the more important i think to really think critically about like what these things are trying to say Definitely. And God forbid, if we end up becoming a really, you know, successful trending hashtag trending podcast, that is the hope. But um, our, at least as of now, where we said in episode one, you know, our goal is really to talk about films that have a sort of widespread cultural relevance and longevity. Um, not that there aren't smaller, quirkier movies that we love. Uh, the movies we've selected are by no means going to be a roster of like our favorite films, although I will confess without tipping my hand before, too much before we get to the analysis. I love When Harry Met Sally. I think it is a blast. I had actually not seen it until um, right before Michael and I started working on um, Like Love, which was a small kind of loosely inspired romantic comedy that we made together a couple years ago. And I had actually never seen When Harry Met Sally until like 2018. 
and I think this is only the third time I've seen it, um, but it's it's great. It's a really wonderful film. Um, but that being said, in general, not that we're selecting uh, our favorite movies per se, but uh, hopefully ones that you guys have heard of that you guys will be interested in. And uh, we want this to be like an accessible conversation. So it's not really helpful for us to be like, let's talk about weird French new wave movies you've never heard of. So it'll be a, a top a top 40 ish kind of kind of movie list we'll be we'll be pulling from. Well, Lily, shall we get started? I think we shall get started, Michael. Um, all right, cool. Well, this week we're talking about uh, When Harry Met Sally, which is uh, uh, Rob Reiner's kind of, I was going to say his most famous movie, but that's not true. I feel like every movie Rob Reiner has made is a deeply culturally iconic film. Um, prior to this, he had done The Princess Bride and Stand By Me. I'm going to confess, I don't think I've ever seen Stand By Me. Like, it's about baseball, question mark. I, it's, a, it's based on a Stephen King book. Yeah. Yeah. It's based on a Stephen King book, and it's there's children, there's boys, they play baseball. I have no idea of the finer points. Um, he did the bucket list. He did the bucket list. Uh, he went on to create Castle Rock Entertainment, which uh, did a lot of Aaron Sorkin stuff. They produced A Few Good Men. Uh, he had a bit president. part in uh, New Girl as Jessica <laughs> Day's father. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so he was uh, initially an actor and comedian, did a lot of sitcom stuff, and then pivoted into the writer's room and then um, went on to be a, a very well-known director. So I, I take that back, Rob. I do not know that this is your most popular film, but certainly a classic. Uh, came out in 1989. So that makes it, I'm bad at math. I'm a bad Asian. 30 years? 30 years ago. Yes? Uh, just about. Just about. I mean, like, I'm 25 and I was born in 95. So, so 31 years okay. ago. 31 years ago. Great. We figured it out. Um, and yeah, uh, I guess I, one thing I will sort of um, note for us, uh, it's important that in uh, kind of everything we're striving to do with this podcast, we want there to be a clear differentiation between whether or not we liked a movie, whether or not we think this movie is good, and then sort of the cultural relevance of this film, because um, those are three very different thoughts. Um, so I guess, Michael, if you want to kick us off, what are your, what are your kind of gut feelings about this film? Where do, does it have a special place in your heart? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. So Rob Reiner is the person who directed it, but it was written by a woman named Nora Ephron, who is just delightful. She also, uh, wrote and directed, uh, You've Got Mail, another Meg Ryan movie. Uh, but her lead opposite that movie is Tom Hanks. Uh, and that's one of my favorite romantic comedies of all time. And then... Another movie that she wrote and directed was Sleepless in Seattle. Uh, yeah, she's another Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, truly the two most likable people on earth. Like no shade to Billy Crystal, but you get Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan on screen together, and it is just like the two sweetest humans you can imagine, like all at once. Totally, totally. And uh, so I, I, I actually hadn't seen When Harry Met Sally. Um, for a long time. I didn't see it until really, yeah. Until about 2015 was when I first saw it. Um, really? but I, I grew up with, you've got mail, which is yeah. Yeah. Kind of weird. I think that's not the path most people take. Most people have seen when <laughs> Harry met Sally. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I, I had the hipster path, I guess, if you want to call it hipster. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I see your mustache and I will call it hipster. I'm going to capitalize on that right now. <laughs> Thank you. 
Thank you. I, and I, I guess actually, I had never seen You've Got Mail. I watched it yesterday because it's on HBO Max. And now it sounds like I'm plugging HBO Max on this podcast. Um, <laughs> shout out. Actually, that's very controversial. I should not be shouting out HBO Max. I'm so sorry, everyone. Um, but no, I had never seen You've Got Mail and so cute. Um, we'll be interested in a moment to talk about, I think, kind of the, like the Nora Ephron tropes or kind of like what her romantic comedies, they have a very specific flavor. Totally. Um, but anyway, love that for you. Love that you were an unconventional youth. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but I, I actually, I really enjoy this movie. Uh, I, I, you know, I've always heard about When Harry Met Sally. I think a lot of people, when they first hear about it, they hear about uh, one of the biggest scenes is the, like, the scene where Meg Ryan, like, fakes an orgasm. Iconic. Uh, iconic. There's a, there's a lot of, like, really, really good stuff in there. She has fantastic chemistry with Billy Crystal. They have a lovely back and forth throughout this entire thing. Uh, yeah. And I'm here for it. I'm here for it. And, like... I also like I I I just like get a really good feeling watching this movie. Um, not all of it aged super well, and we could talk about that. Yeah. But like, um, like it's very eighties, both stylistically and tonally. Like, there's a woman who has a rolodex of men she could go out with. Like, it's it's very period specific. Which weirdly enough, I feel like all of Nora's movies are, and not necessarily in a bad way, but are like very much rooted in the era that they were written. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think th I think that's right. Um, but it it in an, in another way, it feels kind of timeless because the soundtrack is like there's a lot of old musical choices. There's not a lot of new yes. music in the soundtrack. Yeah. It and and in that way, like uh, and like all of the themes and what they're talking about um, are still very relevant to today. Uh, and I also think this is just a really, it's a really good movie. Like, uh, Absolutely. We, it's a very good movie. It's a very good movie. It's super well written. We studied this movie in film school. Uh, and for good reason, like the script is super, super tight. It's, uh, it's just very, very well written. Everything has a nice plant and payoff. Like screenwriting classes love this movie. Our screenwriting totally. professor loves this movie. My best friend loves this movie for all those Shout reasons. Shout out Josh. Yeah, um, for sure. And and this movie's like a, it's I you know you you watch when Harry met Sally and you see you're like oh pretty much every rom com that came after when Harry met Sally carries a strand of when Harry met Sally's DNA in it definitely and it's very much a it's a very New Yorky film it's uh I I hate that I'm using this phrase because it feels like a phrase we always use about Woody Allen movies which like ah scary let's keep Woody Allen the hell out of this podcast today <laughs> Woody Allen and HBO Max, Max you're like Lily shut up like you're tainting our brand um but one's I way think, worse yeah, than think, the other though let's be clear <laughs> let me yeah let me be clear one is much worse than the other it's um, HBO Max they're the worst one <laughs> um but no, it's a very New York love lettery kind of movie. It's this quintessential sort of like New York and the fall and a lot of like notable landmarks. And uh, I feel like everyone's takeaway, the sort of pop culture analysis is always like, oh, it makes you want to like put on a cable knit sweater and take a walk through Central Park kind of kind of feeling. So I'm with you. I think it, it's I have a I have a great feeling watching this movie. I was smiling when I turned it off. Um, I think it's a like if we're going to talk about the craftsmanship of the film, I think it's a really great um, structurally sound and creatively fun kind of movie. So uh, I definitely, definitely had a good time watching. Um, as far as, Michael, do you want to talk? Well, I guess you sort of touched on this as far as like, absolutely, it's a film school standard. Um, all of my white guy professors in their 40s and 50s love this movie. 
no shade at any of them. James Dutcher, if you're listening to this podcast, we appreciate your support. Um, but uh, yeah, I think this is a big part of the kind of pop culture canon. I'm sure it is definitely widely regarded as one of the, if not the best, I would say probably neck and neck with like Annie Hall for like most iconic rom-coms. Um, it certainly stood the test of time as far as viewership. Um, I don't know that it's like a, I mean, I guess it's critically acclaimed, like they were nominated for Oscars, but I don't know that now we look at this as like a, I think Annie Hall, sorry to keep dragging Willie Allen into this, but I feel like Annie Hall has a much more like auteur factor to it. Like people talk about that film as like, oh, it's like a film. Whereas I think When Harry Met Sally has more of a reputation as being like fun and puffy, but it's not so much of like a movie, which I think is interesting. And I don't know why that is. I And I, I feel like that's true of kind of all of Meg Ryan's movies. Like, I mean, it's a, very it... well received, but they're not necessarily talked about in like a, like, ooh, the the craftsmanship of the thing. You know what I mean? It's, well, it's a very, uh, Woody Allen's like an independent filmmaker, right? Like, through right. and through. Like, uh, independent, I'm using air quotes, you can't see this because it's a podcast, yeah, yeah. but like, I can see, yeah. more independent than, right. <laughs> uh, like, When Harry Met Sally is a, is a studio, studio rom-com. rom-com. Like, yeah. it's the quintessential studio rom-com. Right. Yeah. It's got that big budget feel, the warm, full lighting, the invisible, like the, the craftsmanship is supposed to be invisible. Right. Like Definitely. that's quintessential Hollywood. Definitely. And it's really beautiful. I love like the costume design, the production design, all of the spaces. Um, uh, Princess Leia has an excellent cameo. Um, oh, rip Carrie Fisher. Rip Carrie Fisher. I tip my hat to you, but also her character, very problematic. We'll get to in a minute. Um, But I think that really the genesis of this story has to begin with talking about the partnership between our screenwriter, Nora Ephron, and our director, Rob Reiner. Um, They went on to be uh, kind of lifelong platonic creative partners. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And did not know until I was doing some very hasty research on both of them earlier today. They are very interesting people from extremely different backgrounds. Um, Nora Ephron uh, has a background in journalism. She's a graduate of uh, Wellesley, which is a very prestigious all-girls college. She was briefly married to Carl Bernstein, who broke the Watergate story alongside Bob Woodward. Uh, which I did not know. Is yeah, that she, she was she like she knew the identity of Deep Throat. Deep Throat was yeah. Yes. Um, which is so weird to me, but like very cool. Um, she was a, but really had a background in journalism and had done a lot of columns. She wrote for the New York Post. Um, and then, uh, oh, by accident, she, uh, I don't know how got, she got relooped into the rewrite process, but she ended up doing a pass on the script for the film, All the President's Men, about uh, the breaking of the Watergate story. And although she did not, not that draft was not used, that is not the, the film we came to know and love, um, uh, someone recommended that she uh, pursue screenwriting. And she was nominated for an Oscar for the first script she wrote, uh, a project called Silkwood, that I'm not going to lie, I had never heard of with Meryl Streep, that's like sort of political, question mark. Um, I I had never, and she worked with Meryl Streep on a couple of projects, which I did not know. I was cringe when I hear. A pretty prestigious, like, background, and like a very kind of academic one. I think as far as, or maybe academic, like like scholarly man, I don't know, but like um, came from a journalism sphere as opposed to a screenwriter, a more um, kind of Hollywood proper background, which I thought was very interesting. And then on the other hand, you have Rob Reiner, who uh, his dad created the Dick Van Dyke show. 
um, and has this background in like a very goofy sitcom-y space. Um, he had a recurring role on uh, the comedy All in the Family and was mostly known for being an actor and then made this pivot into directing. Um, and he was just hot off of having made The Princess Bride when when Harry Met Sally went into production. So you have these two um, very, certainly very successful, pretty notable uh, peeps in the industry, but from very different backgrounds coming together to work on this project. And uh, I think they were very complimentary for each other. Yeah, they are uh, super cool. I mean, and Nora Ephron's background, right? Like you're like, not the typical like background right. I think a lot of people enter Hollywood with. Um, like, I mean, definitely still like, and this, 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 this comes through in her, in her work a lot, you know, like it's definitely still like upper middle class, like more of like the New York elite kind of like story, right? Like we don't, we don't really see work. We don't really see like working class rom-coms right. come out of like the Nora Ephron canon. Right. Like, right. but you know, a lot of people who enter Hollywood, uh, and do this work are are uh, people who uh, like this is their first like their first thing is like making movies. Totally. You know they totally. don't they and don't I start think, somewhere else. Right, right, and I think in many ways that um, in doing this again very thorough Wikipedia research this afternoon, but um, I think in understanding a little bit more about where Nora came from, that to me actually really colors I think the conversation we're about to have. Um, in talking about the ideology of When Harry Met Sally and kind of what does this mean in a big picture sense. Uh, Michael sent me a really wonderful uh, forward to the When Harry Met Sally script uh, from Nora talking about kind of the development process and working with Rob and um, that uh, Harry was very much based on Rob and Sally very much based on her. Um, and l let me be clear, they, to the best of our knowledge, never slept together. They were certainly not a power couple um, but did have this very rich lifelong friendship. Um, and that was kind of the, the kicking off point for this, for this script. So uh, for posterity and for maybe some of our listeners who are not familiar uh, or once saw this movie while really high a long time ago, uh, Michael, do you want to give us a little bit of a plot breakdown? When Harry Met Sally, what is the film about? Uh, who is in it? What happens? Uh, fill us in. Oof. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I will try to be succinct. I am not known for being succinct with plot summaries. I, I get shit for this in my D&D &D group whenever we recap the week before. So They're we'll like, see how this goes. Yeah, okay, great, 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 great. I'll uh, prompt you. I'll hold you accountable here. So the movie starts uh, actually with like uh, an interview of like an old couple. And this is like a device that they use throughout the movie. And um, really interesting. Um, it's like, uh, just want to say it's very fascinating. The, it's a, it's an old couple and they're talking about how they met and married within two weeks. The woman doesn't say anything. Yeah. Um, that up. which I think is fascinating, but that's the device they come through back to throughout the movie interviews with like older couples. Um, who have the been actual... together forever so that it's like oh they're celebrating you know 25 or 30 or 35 years of being together. And they're these little sort of vignettes of like how we met. Yeah, they're all senior citizens, and they're all, like, in really happy relationships. And, yeah. And it's great. Uh, Just like the real world. All the happily married old people, you know, have all been featured in this film. So. Yeah. Uh, but the actual, like, story story is is Billy, Crystal, and Meg Ryan, who 
don't really age in this movie, but it takes place over the course of like several, almost a decade, if not more. 10, 12, 12 years? 12 years. They don't yeah. age at all. They don't even try to make them no. age. Like Billy Crystal Just grows a beard sweaters. at one point. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> different sweaters. That's accurate. Sweaters. Meg Ryan has some, some, some glasses at one point. Uh, she's got yeah. those fancy like glasses that like uh, have like a little strap on the back of them so she can wear them oh, yeah. around her oh, neck. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind uh, of that intellectual mom look. Exactly. Uh, but it starts out with them at college. Uh, they're moving. They're both Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Um, Harry and Sally are both uh, moving to from Chicago to New York, and they've like just finished college. And uh, Harry is like hooking up with some girl uh who is like Sally's friend. Who is yeah. Sally's friend uh and uh Sa- they're like making out like in the on the quad or whatever and Sally's like stop we need to go and is like kind of annoyed or whatever and then they like get on the road. Um and uh So it's kind of this like reverse meet cute because Harry and Sally have never met. Yes, that's our assumption. Yes. Maybe through the grapevine, but they yeah. are carpooling together to New York. And so it's this kind of like awkward, like reverse first cute moment thing where Harry belongs to someone else and Sally doesn't really care for him, but now they're going to be trapped together in the car for, you know, the 12 hour drive or whatever they've got ahead of them. And so our story begins. Yeah. So they're on, they're on the road, they're talking and like Sally is annoyed with Harry. Harry's like this really cynical dude who like, uh, is just kind of dark, uh, in how he approaches the world um, and is very like a classic, like man who knows it all and is always right. Um, and Sa- Sally is annoyed by this. Um, and they're, they're talking and like Sally, I don't know why Harry's going to New York. I don't know what Harry wants to do, but you learn that Sally yeah, wants to, I don't even know He's what Harry does. What, what does Harry even do as a career? I have no idea. He ends up being a lawyer, but I don't think he brings up, any of his interests they have a long conversation about the imminence of death and that's kind of all we know about harry right yeah harry gets to have like thoughts and philosophy and sally uh sally wants to be a journalist and that's what you know about her uh and how nothing's happened to her yet and that's why she's going to new york and so they go to a diner and they talk more um and uh harry kind of makes a pass at sally and Sally's like, no, I, I'm not feeling this. Like you were literally dating my, one of my good friends. Right. And I don't not like. Not cool, man. Yeah. She's like, I don't, I don't, I don't like this. And, and, and Harry's like, well, I take it back. And she's like, you can't take it back. It's already out there. Um, and then they get on the road again uh, and they end up in New York and then they never see each other again until but five so, years yes. later. Yes. I'm so sorry. I do want to stop you though. I want to flag for that moment in the diner because this really to me is what the crux of this film is about and becomes the long lasting nature of kind of the conversation we continue to have about this movie Mm -hmm. aside from just what a delight Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are. Um, Harry tells, so Harry's trying to make a pass at Sally. She pushes him off, not literally rejects him psychologically says no, thank you. And uh, she makes like a, well, we can be friends. And he's like, well, men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. And she's like, Sally says, well, that's not true. I'm now I'm butchering it. I should have looked at the script. But Sally says, that's not true. I have lots of male friends and I've never slept with any of them. And Harry says, no, you don't. And she says, yes, what? You're telling me that I, I've secretly slept with my male friends. And he says, no, but they all want to sleep with you. 
And so you can never really be friends with people of the opposite sex because all the men really just want to fuck the women. And uh, whether or not they are fucking you, that's all they think about. And that's why you can't really be friends. And well, I want Michael to get back to our plot summary in a moment. This to me, I think is really what I'd like us to loop back to at the end because I guess it's not so much that I don't think there's a grain of truth to that, but I think it's very ignorant that that's somehow like that's what men think or the idea that because you've thought about fucking someone that means you can't be friends with them. Like, I'm like, I've thought about fucking everyone I've ever met and that doesn't like inhibit my ability to be friends with them. You know what I mean? And the idea that like that's somehow an exclusively male quality that like, oh, women never think about having sex with people. Like, what are you talking about? Of course they do. Um, but this logic of- Wait, women can... think about having sex? Yeah. Hot take, Michael. Hot take. Women have thought about sex. Women are um, horny? Maybe. Yeah. All the time. Shock. Well, actually, I won't. Hashtag not all women. Um, but uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I think this really becomes the central dialogue of the film is really what we talk about. When we refer to When Harry Met Sally, it becomes this idea of can men and women really be friends or does the sex part always get in the way? So in this moment in the diner that uh, we, and I, and I feel like, I don't know that that question is ever really answered for me in this film of like, who is right? You know, like can, are they friends? Because in many ways, Harry and Sally's friendship all ends up being just a precursor to their courtship, right? That there's a sort of inevitability of like, oh, even though they bicker and they seem different on the outside, we understand that underneath all of that, they're really meant to be together. And uh, spoiler, they do end up together. Um, but planting the seeds of this conversation about can they really be friends or is that fucked? Because inevitably they're going to sleep together and then everything will go to hell. So, No, thank you for that flag because that's like kind of the core of the movie and what we're talking yeah. about. So yeah. probably helpful to include that. Just holding um, you accountable. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, okay, so they get out of the car, they leave, they get to New York, they part ways, never to see each other again until five years later. Five when... years later, they're they're uh, in the New York airport. They're flying back to Chicago. Um, this time, Sally is like making out with a dude who is Harry's friend Joe. Um, there's a whole little thing where they're like, where like Harry doesn't recognize Sally, but Sally recognizes Harry and is like remembers like how awful Harry was and is like, I don't want to fuck with this guy, like. Um, and then they yeah. get on the, they get on the plane and, uh, Harry is sitting behind Sally on the plane and Harry starts to talk to her. Um, and it's really funny because like, there's this whole little bit where like Sally, uh, can't remember the name of like the girl that Harry was making out with in the previous yeah. scene. Um, and then, uh, Harry doesn't remember her name either. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so but then Sally tries to give him shit and she's like, I can't believe you don't remember that girl that you were sleeping with. And he's like, I can't believe you don't remember the name of your good friend. Um, so there's kind of a weird truce, I think there, um, yeah, and a very undeniable chemistry and a flirtation and a, uh, to me, very rom-com world, uh, like friendly bickering. Right, that somehow like oh, the more a woman insists that she doesn't like you, the more she secretly does. Which, hello, at men, I don't know that that's often true. Sometimes she just doesn't like you. But for the purpose of this scene, it is delightful and charming. And uh, once again, they go their separate ways. It's very deceptive. It's very deceptive as someone who is very raised deceptive. on rom coms. I can never yeah. tell when a woman's flirting. Right. You're like, is she just angry? I can't tell. Yeah. All of my emotional like stuntedness and intelligence when it comes to women comes from when Harry met Sally in particular. Yeah, you know. Michael is suing rom-coms. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
Um, but in this conversation, you learn that Harry's about to get married. Uh, oh, yes, yes. Harry uh, tries to, like, hang out with Sally after the plane lands. It's like, you want to grab dinner and be friends? And uh, Sally's like, I thought you said uh, men and women can't be friends because the sex gets in the way. And he's like, well, no, maybe that's not true because, like... Uh, we're seeing it, other people. We're seeing other we people. We both have partners. Yeah. Uh, we both have partners, so it's okay. And then he's like, wait, maybe that's not okay because then the other person's going to think that we're cheating on them or something or like so- something along those lines of like, it's wrong. Like it's, it's, it still shows that it, it becomes a problem within the own, re- within the own relationship. Uh, right. Because if- it implies that if you have an opposite sex friend who you're close to, then that implies you're not getting something from the sexual relationship you're having. And that may- will make your partner insecure and ultimately doom their significant others. So they decide that they, to just stay away from that landmine altogether. Yeah, which is like also not great. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, and then what happens next? They're um, oh the next uh, scene. The next scene. They're back in New York, and uh, Sally has broken up with Joe. Um, and he broke up with her. He broke up with her. Uh, Maybe she, whatever her relationship has ended it's not working she's now back to being single yeah she yeah they they like kind of mutually broke up um but yeah she and she's like she's like weirdly over it like she's like weirdly cool about the whole thing and her friends are like why aren't you in tears because like this happened and she's like i'm fine um yeah. and she carrie fisher is her best friend and is trying to set her up with somebody and she's like i guess you could set me up with somebody but i don't know um, and we'll, yeah, we'll... and Carrie, yeah, and Carrie Fisher is kind of the foil to Meg Ryan because she's like, to me, like kind of every possible trope of like desperate thirty-something womanhood you can imagine, right? She's super man crazy. She, the gag of her character is that she's having this long-standing affair with a guy who everyone knows is not going to leave his wife, but she keeps hoping he's going to leave his wife. Um, and whose entire life seems to revolve around trying to net a man and lock down a husband and encouraging her friends to do the same. And while we can all, again, uh, celebrate the beloved Carrie Fisher, um, I think her character to me is one of the things that has aged the worst about this movie. Totally. That it's this really cartoonish desperation of like, oh, this, like, this is what's lurking ahead of you as a woman. Because eventually you're gonna be undesirable, you're gonna be alone. And this is what you should be afraid of at all costs. And that becomes a real sort of motivating factor uh, in the long run of certainly Sally's outlook on relationships in a way that never seems to affect Harry or his male friends. And, um, and, and, and she's really charming in it, right? Like she, she is, it, it's really insidious because when, because Carrie Fisher is really, really good and the details are so awesome. Like Sally's like, she's trying to set Sally up with a friend and, uh, and Sally's like, that person's married. And then, so she just like, she just goes married and she <laughs> folds the corner of her little Rolodex thing and puts it back. And it's just like yeah. the perfect detail. Um, totally. You know, but it's, it is very, uh, very insi- in- insidious. Um, uh, and then, and then we cut to Harry uh, to hanging with his friend. They're playing sports because men and sports. <laughs> Hashtag and, sports. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're at the batting cages, I think. Um, our listeners are no, really missing they're not, they're not Michael the miming. Coaches. Our listeners are really missing li- missing Michael miming at men playing sports in the batting cage. And really, I'm so sorry that there's like not a gift set to accompany this portion of the podcast, but it's super quality. 
Uh, but yes, they're doing they're doing man things, being men, and uh, we come to find out Harry's marriage has also disintegrated. So he and Sally are both unknowingly single and in the same city for the first time. Yeah, yeah, they're in they're at the the Mets game, and it's funny because he's like they keep doing the wave, and Harry's like talking about how he's di- divorced. Um, and this is where uh, Harry's talking about like uh, for the first time, like what. Uh, like he's telling the story of his divorce, and this is this is part of the movie like that upon rewatch like really irks me. Where he's like he's like talking about like how he's telling the story of how Helen of how Helen decides to to get a divorce with him, and then he then goes on to say it's all a lie because she's actually like she she was actually cheating on him. But the way right. he found out that he was that that Helen was cheating on him was he followed her. Right. To uh, where she was going. Her lover's apartment. Yeah. Yeah. And this movie just like, this movie just like totally uh, like normalizes like creepy behavior. Like uh, uh, Carrie Fisher, Carrie Fisher's character does a lot of the same things throughout the movie. Um, And I was just like, oh no. And rom-coms and like stalking are, like stalking is always played up for like cutesy laughs in rom-coms. Definitely. uh, Or is is meant to be like the guy is really trying and totally and it's women don't like being stalked dudes yeah hot take women don't like being stalked um right and i think this just fits into this broader umbrella category of the ways that we normalize like love makes you do crazy things and in the end it's always worthwhile and whether that manifests as um i think more so in other films stalking or uh, yes, yeah, sort of creepy man behaviors, uh, or just a certain manic kind of desperation of like, right, like love, love will cure all. So whatever you do on the quest to attain love is totally fine. Whatever you sacrifice is completely reasonable. Um, whatever you force on another person makes sense. Um, and I don't think that, I don't think when Harry met Sally, for whatever its sins may be, is a really egregious example of that manic behavior. No. But we certainly see that reflected in rom-com tropes at large. Um, so I think that's certainly worth, worth yeah, there's no, there's no, there's no hitch scene where like they're driving down the road (laughs) and he jumps on like the roof of the car to like get them to stop. So it doesn't, it doesn't get to that level. Um, but it does try to totally bananas. Yeah. But it does, it does try to have like a little, like, like, like they try to have their cake and like eat it too a little bit because like they, they also show Carrie Fisher being creepy and like, let's just be clear. Creepy, being creepy is like not good no matter what the gender of the person is doing it. Um, I think, I think a lot of men like do like learn about love through rom-coms because we as a society don't do a good job teaching men about how to interact with women. Um, and so rom-coms are an example of that. Uh, right. We're like, hello men, you can learn about love through rape B plots and rom-coms. And these are the tools we'll give you and assume that there will be no scary ramifications as a result of this. Yeah, and I just I just wanted to say because I I know some people are like, but Carrie Fisher's creepy too, and I'm like, and, right, like let's just end all creepy behavior, you know, uh, totally. So so then we get into uh, they're like, we've learned about them, and then they're like Meg Ryan and Carrie Fisher at the bookstore, uh, and uh, Harry is also there, uh, and like. They're like, oh shit, it's Harry. And Harry's like, it's Sally. And he's like, kind of like 
checking her out from across the thing. Yeah, yeah. And they talk. Um, and they Harry learns that uh, Sally has uh, ended her relationship with Joe. Sally learns that Harry's now divorced. They end up deciding to get dinner. Um, and they really hit it off. And they're, they're talking even more about how... Um, like, Sally tells Harry that she ended up... She ended things with Joe because, like, she kind of realized that uh, things just weren't working out. Uh, it's a really interesting right. monologue because at first you're like... is Harry, it, it, At first it seems like she's ending her relationship with him because uh, she, like, wanted to have kids, which is, like, an annoying trope. Like, I feel like women always sure. want kids and the men don't, and so that's why right. it doesn't work out. But then, then they, like, subvert that, and she's like... And actually we, like... We just weren't like even they connected. Weren't compatible. We weren't having totally. sex like we were totally. like at all, and it just wasn't great. Uh, and so then Harry and Sally keep talking, and uh, they have a little interaction um, uh, in the park where uh, where uh, I forget how it comes up, but but Sally's response is like, "I just didn't want to sleep with you, and you had to write it off as a character flaw." Yeah, and it's it's. It's one of the more, like, rah-rah, like, feminist aspects of the movie because you're like, oh, totally. Sally here is challenging the status quo, right? Um, Definitely. And then... And, and, then... I, and I actually think there are a lot of those moments in this film. And again, mm -hmm. I think that's where I'll go back to do, having done a little bit of digging on Nora as a person, our screenwriter. Like, and that she has kind of a very pointedly political background in, like, the kinds of things that she wrote and the kinds of op-eds she was interested in and... Um, I think we see, combined with other articles and texts you and I have read about when Harry met Sally specifically, you know, I think we see kind of the framework of that pop up with Sally. Um, and it's not that I think Harry's character is overtly misogynistic or that I don't think Billy Crystal is a great performer, but I think there's this certain kind of like upper hand that Harry always seems to have, right? That Harry's pessimism uh what some of their early conversations about you know like do you have a dark side like he's like i think about death all the time do you and then sally's like no i don't and then sort of what we infer from that is like well harry's really deep harry's really deep because he's kind of depressed and he's really pessimistic and that that's somehow good right the fact that sally is more bubbly or optimistic or outspoken that these are somehow negative qualities about sally but that harry likes her quote in spite of this and i think it's that way in which that dynamic is established. It's not necessarily that either of their characters are bad, but I think that the jokes tend to be teed up with Sally at the butt of them, right? That we're often kind of laughing at Sally's neediness or Sally's emotionalness or what have you in a way that it's like, oh, the zinger is always like, but Harry's actually right. Um, and I think that creates a certain kind of uneven footing that our story walks on that to me does skew a little bit, I guess, I don't even know that I'm trying to say sexist, but like uh, encourages us to empathize more with Harry than it does with Sally, if that makes sense. I mean, yeah. Did you find that? Yeah, I mean, well, and Harry is literally the main character of the movie, regardless, right? right? Like we don't ever hear, like there's that final scene where before he like runs to her at the New Year's Eve party and there's like voiceover in Harry's head that we're hearing. Right. Billy Crystal narrate. We never hear Sally's voiceover, right? right. So it's not it's not an even two-hander. Uh definitely. You're you're meant to empathize with Harry. Harry's meant to be the one that changes, right? Harry's the one right. who has to apologize and realize that sex 
that sex did get in the way and I love you and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But here's where I think we really get into the bulk of the film. I mean, thank you for teeing up kind of our opening moments, right? But the bulk of the film then being Harry and Sally slip into this very comfortable yet unconventional sort of platonic marriage of being friends who watch the same movie from their respective apartments and talk on the phone all the time and go to lunch all the time and spend all this time together, that there is skepticism from the other people in their life around, well, if this person is so great, why are you not sleeping with them? Um, and that there's not really a clear, I feel like if anything, we're led to believe that they like each other so much, they just don't want to burst the bubble. Like, I think they always know they're attracted to each other and there's a very definitive kind of flirtation there. Um, but they do not act on it until act three, at which point they do and they sleep together and it's weird, but then Harry makes it all right. And then they become the idyllic couch sitting couple uh that we've always wanted them to be and uh and it's a it's a good feeling to me at the end where we end up um yeah and and there are some there are some really great moments in there right like there's the there's the orgasm scene where uh that that i think like really adds like genuous like genuine uh genuine genuine genuinity but i don't know the word you know (laughs) what i mean i was like ingenue ingenuity Ingenuity? It's, <laughs> yeah. Someone can someone please spell check us? Thank you. I mean, that's what that's what that's the appeal, right? Of like a yeah. of a male female yeah. friendship, right? On some level is like, oh, like you can talk about sex, right? And totally. more specifically, like the woman can like reveal something to the man that he didn't know about sex. Right. Which is right. women and, fake right. orgasms. Right. Which uh, circa 1989 was a really hot take, I guess. So <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, uh, there, and it's, and it's, it's really charming, right? Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great stuff in there. Um, they have like fantastic chemistry at the end of the movie. There's this, like, there's that great scene where like, uh, Harry is like apologizing and realizing he really likes Sally and Sally's like, I hate you, but she's actually saying, I love you. And it's just, it's it's so fun. It's, it's so fun. And it's exactly what you want to see. Um, definitely and this is this is a really good movie like this is a really good movie and i want to and i i want to emphasize that like i love this movie it's really good and also it's saying some really problematic shit definitely i and it really as per and i think i don't want to put too much of this burden on nora efron specifically or this movie specifically um not to get on the like well everyone was doing it so it was fine but i don't think this for 1989 was an exceptionally problematic film but it certainly centers around a very heteronormative marriage-centric world um in which yeah as to carrie fisher's character right what women want most in the world is be able to catch a man hold him down and lock him down so he can never leave because then your life will be fulfilled and that in the end for all of the beauty and nuance and you know wonderful performance and real humanity of harry and sally's to me very legitimate friendship uh right it ends with you know finally they become the seasoned uh couch interview a la all of the elderly couples we've met throughout the film you know and that they revealed they got married two weeks after harry declared his love two weeks yeah or yeah. two months two months mm-hmm. two two weeks doesn't sound like enough two months someone please fact check two months Months. After this big declaration where the movie ends, two months later they were married. 
And well, again, I'm not here to shut down the marriage complex entirely or to say that you shouldn't want to get married or that that isn't something we can cheer for. I think that when you combine sort of where the story ends, well, Sally gets what she wanted most in the world, which is for a man to give her a ring with the sort of the Carrie Fisher and the other women in this ensemble of this like really imminently ticking baby clock, man hunting, monogamy obsessed kind of white picket fence lifestyle. I think it certainly reinforces a pretty, uh, I don't know, vanilla expectation of like what, what that looks like, which to me is really just a loss because I think there's so much other beauty about this film that feels very real and human and dynamic. And the fact that in the end, we just kind of slap the same sloppy generic ending on it that every movie has feels like a little bit of a, like something was lost in translation there. Well, and the ending is really important, actually, because if you want to get into it, Nora Ephron didn't want yeah. this ending. Right. She didn't want them to get together. Yeah. She, she, uh, there's a really good, you can read all about it in like the, if you get the hard copy or the e-copy of the script, she has like a whole intro where she talks about, she talks about it and she was like, it just didn't seem realistic. Like, like, and yeah. she and Rob Reiner both agreed, but they decided that they were going to... For the gonna, sake of the movie. Yeah, they decided that for the sake of the movie, like, they were going to have them be together because it's Hollywood and that's... You want to walk away with the warm, fuzzy feeling of they're together. Um, and I think, you know, not to toot our own horn or anything, but that's part of why we made our project like Love was this yes. idea of, like, why does Love like romantic sexual love have to be the end all be all, you know, why can't right. we like the actual message here of just like, they're just friends would have been so much more interesting to me. Definitely. Um, Definitely. And then I think that was not to make this a, the like love jerk off fest. We promise we will contain it mostly to this episode, but um, you know, in having worked on this project, which is, you know, in case you're one of the three people listening to this podcast who hasn't been bombarded with like love advertising for 11 years, um, is a uh, sort of indie rom-com about a, a man and a woman who are best friends who are perfect for each other in every way, except for one very small thing. She is just not into him. She decides to see if she can give it a whirl because after all, how hard can it be? Um, and spoiler, our characters end up not being together and that you know, I mean, Michael, we saw firsthand, like, I think how hard that was to get an audience to root for, like, from script development onward. Like, we knew that this was a story about people who did not end up together. But I think it was really hard, especially as the writer, um, you know, <laughs> especially when we were, when I was working on the script, to find, to strike that middle ground of, like, how do we get people to walk away with a good feeling, right? That it still feels happy and cathartic. Like, we want pe the audience to feel like they got what they wanted. Um, when we're so spoon fed this diet of well, what you should want is for them to kiss in the rain. Um, and the fact that our characters don't do that was certainly kind of its own little microcosm of like, how do we, how do we tee that up? And I don't know how successful we were, but um, I would have, I would have, I think Nora Ephron uh, was a, was a much more skilled writer than me. And I would have loved to have seen, um, you know, kind of her, her take on this movie um, had it been a little bit more platonic or nuanced or, or what have you. Yeah. It's a, it's a real shame that Nora Ephron isn't around anymore and writing movies because like post me Too, Nora Ephron is like yeah. something I really want to see. Uh, oh my God. Totally. Uh, 
well, we would have invited her on this podcast. A hundred percent. She's too so. good for us, but yeah, would have invited her. But <laughs> yeah, but I, but I think it's important. Like, and this is the last little bit on like love that I want to touch on is like part of what inspired like love for me. Like, was I actually had an interaction with a female friend, uh, where with a femme identifying friend where she, uh, I was into her and she was just not into me. And I had a hard time grappling with that. And, you know, like I said, I grew up on Nora Ephron comedies and I'm not blaming Nora Ephron. I grew up on a lot of, I loved romantic comedies as a kid. I loved movies as a kid. I, but I especially loved romantic comedies and I'm not like pinning all the blame on Nora Ephron. Like, right. Like I didn't watch. He is. He's pinning all the blame on Nora Ephron. <laughs> Why? Well, that's it, what you should take away from this podcast. Well, I I didn't watch I didn't watch When Harry Met Sally until after I went to college. But yeah. men and women see like learn how they approach, but especially learn how they approach relationships, especially men, through this kind of stuff. There Definitely. is not an intentional messaging here. And it's very insidious. Um, and I'm sorry to say it because I love this movie. Uh, yeah. And we're not canceling When Harry Met Sally. We're not saying you can't watch it. Uh, no, I would, I would, I think everyone should go watch it right now. I think it's a, I think you'll have a great time. Yeah. Just be, um, a, just be aware of what's, yeah. what's being said. Right. There's totally. this, the whole point of this podcast is about nuance. Nuance is yeah. like such a dreaded word, right? Because like a lot of people, a lot of people, especially on the left of the political spectrum, like really tense up when you say the word nuance. But the reality is, is like society as a whole could do a lot better with nuance. And that's yeah. part of this podcast's goal is to encourage is to encourage that. Right. Like watch When Harry Met Sally. Also be aware of what it's saying. Definitely. And I want to point to something because I think what Michael's touching on um, at maybe the core of this movie, but maybe at the core of most romantic comedies becomes this like. And I think is often cited in like the voiceover portion of any movie, right? This is a big thing in Hitch um, of the like, uh, how are men and women different? There's two kinds of people. There's men and there's women. Let me tell you how they're different. And so I pulled uh, a small excerpt from uh, Nora's introduction to When Harry Met Sally and Michael, I'd like to, we haven't explicitly talked about this. So I would be interested to hear your thoughts. So Mm. she's talking about the process of developing the thing with Rob and, you know, how it was very much based on their platonic relationship. And she says, quote, Rob and I disagreed all the time. Rob believed that men and women can't be friends. See, quote, when Harry says men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. She disagrees. Quote, Sally, that's not true. I have plenty of man friends and there's no sex involved. And both of us are right. Which brings me to what When Harry Met Sally is really about, which is not, as I said, whether men and women can be friends, but about how different men and women actually are. She says, the truth is that men don't want to be friends with women. Men know they don't understand women and they don't really care. They want women as lovers, as wives, as mothers, but they're not really interested in them as friends. They have friends. Men are their friends and they talk with their male friends about sports and I have no idea what else. She goes on to say, women, on the other hand, uh, oh my God. Quote, women on the other hand are dying to be friends with men. Women know that they don't understand men and it bothers them. They think that if only they could be friends with them, they would understand them. And what's more, and this is their gravest mistake, it would help. 
women think that if they could just understand men, they could do something because women are always trying to do something. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. And I would like to hear your, to hear your thoughts on that. Um, just as a, as a male person, like, do you think that's true? And again, I'm not like Michael's here to speak for all men. Um, <laughs> I, I don't do not think Michael is can confirm. Michael is in fact, not here to speak for all men. Um, uh, but like, do you think there's validity to that? I think, um, I think it's a very cynical take, uh, that is rooted in truth. Yeah. If that makes sense. Uh, yeah. like, no, she's not she's not saying inaccurate things about the way men and women see the world. Uh, I think there is something to be debated about, like, whether or not her movie is, like, that's the actual takeaway of her movie about how men and women are different. Because it's very much, I don't think that's the takeaway of the movie. Uh, yeah. But, like, I, you're my friend, <laughs> you know. Can't confirm. And, and I want yeah. to be your friend, you yeah. know. Um, and I... I think it's true that there are a lot of men like that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think it's a little, it's a little old fashioned way of thinking though, about the way men and women should see each other and should operate. Right. It's very heteronormative. Yeah. It's very stuck along this like 1980s, like gender binary. Um, and like there's, there's truth in what she's saying, but it's, it's like not the goal. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't think that's what When Harry Met Sally is ultimately about. Like, I like we're yeah. obviously, like, she says that's not what it's about, but it's like what we're talking about and what everybody talks about is how men and women can't be friends because the sex part gets in the way. Right, right. That is literally, like, the, the quote that is pulled from this movie. Uh, but I think, you know, to Michael's point as far as, like, what I get from Nora's quote, I think it's less about how men or women, I think it's more fundamentally about how men and women view friendship, period, or what men and women mean when they talk about intimacy, period. And I think that's not even so much in relation to each other, um, as it is like how they approach that idea overall. Um, this is something I've talked about uh, quite a lot recently with many of my female friends, uh, and I'm not throwing Michael under the bus specifically, can confirm Michael and I are at platonic friends since 2018, contrary to what my Instagram algorithm wants us to be. Um, <laughs> but uh, they're like, do you want to know Michael Wolf liked your post? I'm like, dude, go away. Like, I know Michael Wolf liked my post. I don't need 11 alerts about it. Um, I'm kind of flattered that you get 11 alerts about it. Totally. But also, like, my friend Rachel keeps getting ads for landmine sniffing rats. So sometimes your algorithm is just off, you know? Um, <laughs> but uh, I've had this conversation with a lot of my female friends that I think women are accustomed to a greater degree of emotional intimacy in their relationships, period. That women, and I'm going to make a broad generalization and say who mostly have other female friends, um, which... And what I'm saying by that is I think most women tend to mostly have friends who are also women. Um, and I think they're accustomed to a much higher degree of honesty and transparency and vulnerability and the kinds of things they talk about on a day-to-day -day basis with other non-sexual people. And I think women then expect like that, but on crack with people they sleep with, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're like, oh, well, I understand that like if my friendships are already very close and raw and vulnerable and intimate Then, if I was having sex with this person, I would understand them in this extra way. And we would be able to be really candid. And I think that by and large, we don't give men 
really any tools with which to like understand their emotions or convey them or absorb the emotional baggage of other people, period. I don't think that's like, oh no, men don't understand how to handle lady emotions. I'm like, no, I think men just don't have a lot of tools to process that kind of intimacy at all. And so as such, you tend to end up with women who want, not because women don't want sex or like needlessly emotional, but that women have a higher standard of what that kind of vulnerability should look like and men do not. And that can lead to a lot of dissatisfaction in, you know, when you are sleeping with someone or dating someone or married to someone that women expect a different kind of rapport that is often not there. And so I think that to me is like really the beauty of When Harry Met Sally is that whether, I mean, we can argue about whether or not like, you know, is it problematic or does it send the wrong message that in the end they end up together or they get married and that this is heteronormative or perpetrates ideas about, you know, what the fucking marriage industrial complex or something, but that they have this really rich friendship that I think you see particularly in Harry. You're like, oh shit, he is opening up to her in a way he's never opened up to anyone. But I think in real life, the point is you can open up to someone in a way that is new and exciting, and that doesn't need to translate as you should take off all your clothes and fuck them. Like, you know? Totally. Or maybe you should, but sometimes perhaps not. Um, <laughs> perhaps not. Well, and I, I think what you're getting at, right? Like, this is why the nuance is so important here, because, like, Nora Ephron is a woman, right? Yeah. And But this is what you get when you write a woman when when a woman writes a story catered like leaning and catered to men and centering men like this is this kind of story you get right and i think a lot of but a lot of people if you're just looking on the surface you're like but it's fine right like Nora efron's a woman she wrote this movie and like she's saying that rom-coms are okay and all of this and it's like well no like if you actually look under the hood here like it this is this is this is very much a story that is catered to a male audience and defining women in relation to men in terms of the audience of their, in terms of how they're an audience in the movie, you know, like this is not a, this is not like a feminist movie. This is not a movie written for women. Uh, like at the end of the day, like, uh, right. And, and that is, that is what, that's what really shows here. Right. Oh, I was just going to say the other thing that I have thought about a lot, I think coming off of the uh, old couple interviews that populate the film at random. Um, Those are like, probably the thing that aged the worst. In definitely. The movie. Absolutely. That is the thing that has not aged well. Because it's such a like, you know, I saw this woman down at the drugstore and she was, I don't know what this accent is. Like, is he old? Is he Western? I don't know. But can, just go with it. I'm well, not good we, at accent voices. Can we um, talk about how the only like characters of color in the movie are that like yeah. actually ha- matter are these like there's an old Asian couple. There's an old Asian couple and he's got a thick fucking accent. Um yeah. and the woman doesn't even talk. Yeah. So yeah. But also for what it's worth, I feel like all of the interviews are essentially centered around one speaker and they do take turns cuz I'm with you. I was very put off at the first interview. Like the woman just sits there like blinking like a hostage and you're like blink twice if you need help, like what's going on? Um, but I think the interviews are all very much centered around this, like, I saw this woman and she was the most beautiful woman. And I knew then that I loved her. Um, 
And aside from, I guess, maybe that there's a larger commentary about, like, you know, well, men shouldn't just see the outside of the woman. They should see the inside. Well, that sounds horrifying. That, they should see the inside of the woman. Please cut that out. That's not what I meant at all. Uh, <laughs> there's this idea of, like, oh, like, a man's going to look at you, see that you are so beautiful, and then that is what will make him believe you are exceptional. And Elijah Schlesinger, Schlesinger, I know I'm not saying her name right. You know who I'm talking about, right? The comedian. the comedian Eliza. I'm so sorry. I think you're a blast. Um, but she has this great bit where she talks about like guys in the club and where she's like, you know, every time a group of girls go to the club, there's always like this sense that you're hungry for like, that you're going to go in, you're going to look so hot and the light is going to like catch you in a special way. You're going to walk into the club. The doors are going to open and a man across the room is going to see you. And he's going to be like, I pick that one. You know, and then in this moment, he's going to be like, yeah, that's my wife because she's the hottest bitch in here. And where she's like, that's insane. That's not true. Not because you might not be really hot, but she's like, because everyone in the club is really hot. And this sort of weird childish fantasy of like being seen and swept up by the male gaze in this singular moment that will like crystallize his untold affection for you is very weird. Um and toxic and where she sort of goes on to get into like that culturally there's this great emphasis on men male characters in movies and i think especially movies made for women um that like oh what men really want is a woman with no personality right and we can talk about the twilight franchise until the cows come home michael has really flagged this for the future episode grid so this may come back at you later um but we could talk about i just finished bridgerton uh, shonda rhymes's very fun, fluffy period dramedy on Netflix. Um, and I see a lot of that there, right? But where you have this sort of like, oh, you have a woman who's sort of bland and insecure and believes there's nothing good about her. And then a man will like sweep in and be really attracted to her. And Eliza has this great bit where she's like, there's nothing wrong with you being shy or you being a wallflower or you not liking to wear heels or you being kind of a tomboy, that's fine. But if a man is attracted to you, because he sees you being weak and insecure and he's like i pick that one she's like that man is like a rapist and you should stay the fuck away from him um and so i think yeah i think we twist these narratives around kind of like what attracts men to a specific woman that, that i think as women we want so desperately to feel very special and that that really what i mean by that is we want to feel like we are so beautiful that we just radiate this like internal glory that like will make men come to us. And I feel that the interviews in When Harry Met Sally are very much centered around this, like, I saw this woman I didn't know, but she was so beautiful, I knew she would be my wife. And you're like, that's a pretty weird story. And also, I don't know that that's very romantic. Like, um, Well, and it's, it's weird too, because like the actual structure of a rom-com, especially in When Harry Met Sally, is like the opposite of that, right? Like Harry, right. like Sally meets Harry and she's disgusted by him. And right. like- uh, that's the meat cube, right? Like, right. and like, in every rom-com they meet, and, but, but like, there's always conflict and they're not attracted to each other. Right. But it's cute because you, we, the audience, know that they're gonna be attracted to each other. Totally. And I think that maybe just becomes a trip up of like, in film period, right? Because you're always like, you're writing a scene for intention, an obstacle, you need the characters to clash. And it's really hard to have that like, Yes, as Michael's saying, like, it's really hard to craft that meet cute moment if there is no conflict. And so as such, we tend to build them around, like, 
oh, here are the last two people on earth that you think would like each other. So we're going to have them be really snarky to each other, but it'll secretly signify that they like each other. And don't get me wrong, as someone who loves banter and who will really put banter on like top five sexiest things you can do or be good at, like, I think that's great. Um, but I think it does, we do tend to introduce characters in these settings as being kind of diametrically opposed and that that is somehow sexual. When I think in real life, it is often not. Sometimes you just don't like people and that's not code for anything. I, uh, I couldn't have said that any better myself. Yeah, I think that's pretty spot on. I, there are a couple other things that I think we should cover and then, uh, I think we're good. Uh, one is like this movie, uh, actually popularized the term high maintenance. Yes. Do you want to talk about that sequence a little bit? Um, yeah, so it, it comes from in the movie, like Harry is, Harry is observing Sally and Sally is like based on Nora Ephron. And this is a thing Nora Ephron actually does in it, like did in her life, which is like she, Sally is like a very particular orderer at restaurants and like has very specific <laughs> requests that are like kind of extra work for the wait staff, but are like, she totally. just likes it how she likes it. Um, she likes a lot of stuff on the side. Sauce like- is on the side. Yeah, she and, and and she had several contingencies that she was like, if I if you can't do it then with this, then do this and do this yeah. instead. And it's like, it's a whole thing, and it's supposed to be funny, but it just uh, and and Harry Harry like rib, ribs her for it and thinks it's cute, right. and we think it's cute, right? Um, but later on, Harry and Sally are talking, and uh, they're like having one of their like phone chats while they're watching Casablanca, and uh harry's like yeah you're very high maintenance and uh that's where the that's where the origin of the term actually comes from uh there was i'm pulling it up uh megan garber published a piece in the atlantic about this called the quiet cruelty of when harry met sally and like when harry met sally actually like coined this term this is like there's not really uh like a use of this like before um right uh and and basically what harry's saying in this is like uh they're talking about ingrid bergman in casablanca she's low maintenance and sally's like what's low maintenance and harry's like there are two kinds of women high maintenance and low maintenance uh and uh harry's like you're the worst kind you're high maintenance but you think you're low maintenance because sally's like what kind of woman am i um so this uh so when so when Harry met Sally, like Megan Garber wrote in this article where she's talking about like this is the movie that like popularized that term, uh, and like you can't really track the term before then, like the term's usage mm-hmm. before then, um, and I think this is really important. Like like I said, like when Harry met Sally is one of my go to examples for like people are like oh it's just a movie, and I'm like this is why is is actually just because of this right like i think like explaining the tropes and the ideology of what a movie sells is one thing right and like Definitely. you know we're 70 minutes into a podcast now or whatever where we're talking about this right and it's it's complicated and it deserves attention and detail right and then there's like little scenes like this that stick with people and the term high maintenance is born and any woman will tell you i i have gotten feedback personally like from women in my life (laughs) who are like, I hate the term high maintenance. Right. I just watched a TikTok about this the other day (laughs) where, where a a TikTok user was saying like, 
Yeah, uh, when he says high maintenance, when he calls you high maintenance, it really means he just doesn't want to try. And you're all right. high maintenance. Yeah, preach, <laughs> totally. Right, and because the subtext of that becomes, you shouldn't be, what the what men want is they want a woman who is low maintenance. And then let's talk about the reverse of that, and which is not explicitly discussed in this scene, but I think we all as people who exist in planet Earth in modern day can certainly infer what we mean if someone was like, oh, I think you're high maintenance, where it's like, okay, but a girl is supposed to be low maintenance, which really becomes born out of like, to me, the cool girl phenomena uh, that Jillian Flynn talks about in Gone Girl, um, which was her novel before it became a David Fincher movie. But this idea of like, oh, like women contort themselves to play the cool girl and cool girl just you know, she loves sports and she loves beer and she loves hot wings and she never farts and she never cries and she loves anal sex and she's always game for anything and she doesn't complain and she doesn't need to spend time with her friends. And I'm like, okay, so essentially what you're describing is like a flashlight that loves hot wings, um, which I'm like, I guess I'm not here to like shame the men that just love anal sex and all things like get it i guess i mean because i'm like i think that there is a michael disappears from the screen he's like i can't even hear this but like you know because i'm like i think there's a female equivalent of that especially now through sort of like i don't know postmodern feminism or whatever right of the sort of like well men are essentially useless and you just want a man who will go down on you and you know let you and play your therapist and i'm like okay well that's like dehumanizing also like to me the issue is less of the gender attached but i think that in a pretty overtly patriarchally centric sexist culture which again i'm taking out of not nora efron's hands specifically but in general that like there's this idea that like well as a woman you just shouldn't take up very much space and you shouldn't be too complicated and that in this moment sally being quote high maintenance is like the worst thing you could say to a woman and yet in the end it's like oh but it's romantic because harry loves her anyways as if the idea that Sally having needs or desires or opinions is an inconvenience, but Harry's such a good guy, he'd be willing to overlook that, I think percolates into a certain kind of like larger toxic conversation for sure. Yeah, I I think that's really well said. And like it, I I have heard, I have been in conversation with plenty of men who use this term and they do not know right. the origin of this term right. and where it comes from. So right. whenever somebody tries to argue movie, it's just a movie. Yeah. You can, you can use when <laughs> Harry met Sally as, as yeah, you can thank yeah. Megan Garber at the Atlantic uh, totally. for the quiet cruelty we, of when Harry met Sally. Do we have show notes? Can we link this in the show notes? Yes, we will link this okay. in the show notes. It's a great article. Um, we will link this in the show notes. Yeah. There's, there's that that this movie does. And then the other thing this movie does that's super problematic that we haven't talked about at all yet is it 100% normalizes the chopping down of Christmas trees. That is, in fact, why we are here to tear down this film. Yes, they it, do chop down a Christmas tree just straight out of the woods. And uh, yeah. Well, they go to a Christmas tree farm, so they don't really explore the exploitation of the Christmas tree that's happening there. Um, side note, chopping down Christmas trees is actually like bad for the environment and we should stop doing it. Uh, but isn't this like a whole conversation every year because it's like, Oh, but is it worse to have a fake tree or a real tree? And people are like, well, a fake tree is better. 
you know, because it's like, you don't have to chop down a tree, but also like chopping down Christmas trees. Like they're literally grown for the purpose of being trees. So like, I feel like this is kind of a moot debate. Like maybe just don't have it. Like I love, I mean, Michael's Jewish. So he, fuck you, Michael. You don't know anything. You don't, you, wow. don't care. you have no, you have, you have no skin in the Christmas tree game is what I'm trying to tell you. But I have um, skin in the, like, we as a society spend a lot of resources and money and time, like, growing Christmas trees to chop them down totally. to sell a culture of Christmas. Totally. I guess what I'm saying, again, now that we get to the real meat of this podcast, I think this to me is, like, I'm just like, I don't know that that's the hill I'm trying to die on. Like, my dad sent me these uh, chewable toothpaste tabs that come in a little glass bottle so that it's like, oh, they're like, there's no plastic waste. And I'm like, I mean, I guess that's valid, but also I'm like, of all the kinds of waste that humans are like polluting the earth with the idea that like my tube of toothpaste is like the worst thing I'm doing to the environment, like doesn't feel like a valid concern, you know? Like I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> one less piece of plastic, but I'm like also, but what about like, you know, everything else? So not to be pessimistic, but I'm just like, you know, maybe I like normal toothpaste. Maybe Harry and Sally just got a lot of joy out of that tree. So I guess we'll never know. <laughs> Well, there are two scenes where they go and get a Christmas tree. Yeah. Uh, so just so yeah. you know, think about the ideology of, of Christmas, Christmas trees tree. that when Harry yeah. met Sally is selling. Yeah. Uh, Thank you, Michael, for spoiling all of the good Christmas tree scenes in this film for our listeners. You're welcome. You're so welcome. That's what I'm here to do. This is why we need to cancel when Harry met Sally. Let's cancel Christmas <laughs> while we're at it. Just saying. Yeah. Donald Trump is stalking you back to your house as we speak. He's like, I was, Michael, I was going to do a Trump impersonation, but actually I don't even want to hear my Trump impersonation because we don't need to speak of him anymore. I was so, kind of hoping we could go at least one episode without talking about him. He's not even president anymore. But yeah. is there anything else about When Harry Met Sally that you think people need to hear about? That we any Anything else that's like bugging you about this movie or things that you like, you think this movie does well or like, I don't know. Or we can... yeah. Yeah. Closing thoughts. Um, no, I feel like this was a, if not a concise, certainly comprehensive summary of my thoughts on When Harry Met Sally. Um, yeah, I would be, in I think further down the line, we may do more rom-com episodes. I, I again want to reiterate, I do not think this by any means goes high on my list of like most problematic rom-coms, um, but it is a movie Michael and I have spent a disproportionate amount of time talking about and analyzing over the last couple of years so it seemed fitting as our as our first episode so we will be continuing to like learn and grow with you our listeners which right now i know will at least consist of my mom and my agent and like my fr freshman roommate chloe levin and other than that i don't know who listens to this podcast but hopefully all of you guys will weigh in on our future episodes and uh we we will be uh recording uh approximately every other week so you will be getting two episodes a month from us and uh, maybe one day we'll be important and have a patreon but uh as of now that's that's all we know michael do you have any closing thoughts on when harry met sally or christmas trees or judaism or any other hot takes you would like to share with our rabid audience well now that you mentioned it i would love to talk about racial capitalism okay well okay jesus christ um, <laughs> no i separate podcast <laughs> yeah i think I think uh, When Harry Met Sally, beautiful movie. Keep watching it. Uh, you know, I don't think you're ever going to hear... I, I think it's going to be rare that you're going to hear us go like, no one should watch this movie and it should just die. Um, yeah. 
but uh and i definitely don't feel that way about when harry met sally so you know i think you you can watch it you can enjoy how cute and charming billy crystal and meg ryan are together uh carrie fisher's in it she's just lovely you know it's 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 fun uh I, I have a good time watching it. I've, I've watched it a million times now and I will continue to watch it. So yeah, Michael uh, just has it on an endless loop in his house at any given moment. That's what he's watching. Pretty much, pretty much. Blockbusted is an independently produced podcast created by Lily Yasuda and Michael Wolf. Our theme song is Retro Future Clean by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Music, or anywhere else you choose to get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe, and if it is on Apple Music, take the time to leave a positive review so other listeners can find us. If you have thoughts, comments, or future episode suggestions, feel free to reach out at blockbustedpod at gmail.com. That's blockbustedpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.